in effect, the flood was probably seen as an act of recreation. So these are just some good ideas to keep in mind, some things to kind of give you some grounding as we jump into this very interesting story. Before we jump into the flood, though, we get to step into some fun talks. I think this is a great place and a great story to have the discussion of theology and science. And how do we deal with these things? And how do we deal with sometimes conflict between science and theology? I think this is a great place to have this discussion. I think it's important to have these types of discussions. It's not fun. It's not always comfortable. I may make some people mad. I, I, I understand that. And, and this will be great. I promise. I believe it'll be good because I think in our culture we're asking these questions and we're seeing these things. We're seeing science say certain things about the Bible. We're saying the Bible seems like the Bible is saying something different. What in the world do we do about this? Well, let's dive into it. By no means will I say everything there is to say about this. But let's begin to start having this discussion. So here you go. Traditional Orthodox Christianity has affirmed a two-book view of God's truth. This is interesting. Now, now before we're going to follow me, all right? Affirmed a two-book view of God's truth. God reveals himself in the Bible, undoubtedly, and he reveals himself in nature. Okay? Psalm 19, Romans 1.20 are the big passages that support this. Scientists, way back when they started doing scientists, held on. They are quoting these verses saying, hey, we are trying to understand God. We are worshiping God by doing science because we believe he has revealed himself through nature. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Psalm 19, verses, I think, 1 and 2. Again, Romans 1.20. This is Paul saying, hey, these, uh, the invisible God has been revealed. These attributes of God, his eternal, his eternality, Certain attributes of God have been revealed in his creation to the point that people are without excuse. How crazy is that? That's a pretty insane statement for Paul to make. I mean, one to think about. But he, to his mind, God has so revealed himself through nature that people are without excuse to know God. Romans 1 is a big chapter in the Bible, a very powerful chapter, a very interesting one. But again, this is always given this foundation that God has revealed himself through nature. And again, this isn't hard to understand because again, Genesis 1, we see God created it all. God created everything, we see. And in a slightly good illustration, you can get to know the painter through his works of art or her works of art. You can. But again, there is always a little bit of a hierarchy, undoubtedly, in these revelations. So uh, nature, general revelation is kind of a, the theological term for God revealing himself through nature. He does reveal himself. But he reveals himself more personally and even in a better way through special revelation, through his word. And then, like, this, I don't know, this could be debatable, but like just above that is obviously God reveals himself most perfectly and most truly through Jesus Christ. But Jesus is also in this special revelation kind of category and theology. Does this make sense? So here's the point of this. If both of these are revealing 
reveal God, and let's say theology is the primary discipline by which we understand God's word, science is probably the primary discipline by which we understand nature, if it's still God, then they should be singing the same song. They should be saying the same thing. If interpreted accurately and faithfully, and obviously we are fallible human beings on both sides of this. Theologians are fallible as well as scientists, and we know that. But again, in the idealism, God created everything. He created nature, and he created the ability to do science, as scientists have, from the very beginning, believed. That's why they did it, because they saw order, and they saw, I can understand this, and I can understand some of God and see some of his character coming through this, and we even, can't we see that? Don't we see that? We go outside at night, we look at the heavens, we say, oh my gosh, how great thou art. How wonderful, how beautiful God is through creation. They should be saying the same thing. Science and theology. So I don't like the Bible versus science. I hate that phrase. I hate that phrase. I think that's bad theology. I think it's bad science. I think it's both ways. They should be singing the same song. It's both God created both things. I think this is important. Here's a quote, Pope John Paul II. He was a pope from 1978 through 2005. He famously said, Science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. It's a very powerful statement. Again, showing this camaraderie, this uh, partnership. Not a versus, not a dichotomy, not a you against us kind of situation. But no, they help each other. Because again, same God who reveals himself through both means. A way that this uh, statement really rings true is a very famous uh, event in history. You'll recall Copernicus and Galileo. At the time, Copernicus was a contemporary of Martin Luther. So think about 15... Martin Luther, the Reformation, 1517. So right around that area, Copernicus is a contemporary of Martin Luther. And Copernicus gets this idea, doesn't get this idea, he's very genius, mathematical scientist, things of that nature. And he begins to think that, hey, the Earth is not the center of the universe, it's not the center of the solar system. I think the sun is. And guess what? The church blasted him. The church did not accept him. It's great. Martin Luther and John Calvin, who John Calvin was later, so John Calvin would be more kind of with Galileo. Galileo will come after Copernicus. But they blast both of them. It's great. They have them in sermons. You can find quotes on them where they go after and they say, this is a heresy and this guy is going against the Bible because at the time, the church was reading God's word as the earth was the center of the universe. Again, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. He doesn't create the sun until day 4. They were like, how dare you say that we revolve around the sun? We revolve around, the sun revolves around us. And again, the Old Testament holds up this ideology. Again, they, that's their worldview. The sun rises and sets. Obviously, in our, if we want to you know, be really snobbish, we would say, no, technically the sun does not rise. Uh, we turn, and therefore we come into view, or we can see the sun. We don't have to be that 
snobbish, but you see this idea. And again, it's so prevalent in the church that the earth is the center of the universe, and they totally rejected Copernicus and Galileo's findings. Martin Luther and John Calvin were great men. They were tremendous theologians, followers of Christ. My goodness, we, we're Protestants. We, we kind of are on the shoulders of these men. And for all their wisdom, they couldn't see what was obviously true. And, and I, I, I bet all the money in my bank account that nobody in this room thinks that we are the center of our solar system and that the sun revolves around us. We take it for granted. Of course we revolve around the sun. We know this. But they couldn't see it. And they rejected it because they rejected it because they thought that the Bible at that time was saying a different tune. And this is where this famous quote from John Paul II shows how science can purify religion from error and superstition. Again, a great example of where religion, faith in Jesus, the Bible, can help science, keep science from false absolutes and, and idolatry is when science tries to say that, hey, we're the top dogs. We are the supreme authority of truth. Which again, science sometimes, sometimes, but I think any good scientist will say that, no, that should not be there. We don't see the whole picture. We just see part of the picture. And again, the Bible says, hey, no, there's more to this world than just what we can observe and calculate. There is more going on. So don't say this is the end-all, be-all science, that this is the end-all, be-all. It keeps it from idolatry and false absolutes. Again, it's a partnership. Again, I, I want to hit this so hard. God reveals himself through nature. We see this in God's word. He created it all. It makes perfect sense that it would, he would be revealing himself through it. And again, through God's word, and again through Jesus. So if it's the same God, then they all should be singing that same song, even if they have different, looking at different parts of the picture, if that makes sense. I think this is really important to keep in mind. As we come to a story in the Bible where it's probably one of the biggest battlegrounds of the science versus Bible, and it's the flood, it's Noah's flood. Not Noah's flood, but Noah and the ark and the flood. And I think it's very easy to say, hey, the Bible says this. It was a global flood. Waters covered the entire earth. And then science on the other side will say, and again, majority, the worldwide community heavily is on the side of, it was not a worldwide flood. What do we do? What do we do? I've been asking this question for since the first college, freshman year of college, 2011, figured out, heard for the first time that there was another view on this. I said, what, what, what? I've been asking this question and seeking for answers and trying to understand, what do I do, Lord? It's tough. Let's put science away for a second, and let's look at the text, shall we? If you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, that's where it begins. The flood is Genesis 6, kind of verse 9 through chapter 9. 
takes up a large chunk of this kind of first 11 chapters of Genesis. I think we can, we need to keep in mind that the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there is, it would seem that it is not straightforward history. It is not straightforward. It is not, this is exactly how it is written and this is exactly how it happens. That already makes sense. We've already seen that in Genesis 1. It looks like God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. But we see probably not. There's a literary device being used for a specific, specific purpose, to show functionality, to show order, to show what God is doing. Probably not affirming a, a scientific, this is when and how God did this. So we already see that, okay, and I say face value in the sense of, that's where I just read it and all the words, exactly how what it seems to be saying is exactly what it means to be saying. And I think that's not straightforward. I don't think these first 11 chapters read that way. I think the flood narrative speaks to some other things going on in the sense that Noah is a flat character. If you'll read this story, Noah has no lines. That's something. That is something. Abraham has lots of lines. Even, even Cain has lots of lines. But Noah does never speaks. This story is really not about him. It's not that it's not about him, but it's really about God, and it's about this, the themes that are being brought forward through this scripture. And that's something to think about. Again, and maybe kind of going back to the science thing, the ark and how big it was, it would be the greatest engineering feat in the history of man. It is two-thirds the size of the Titanic. The Titanic was built in, uh, well, it, it sank in 1912, so I imagine it was worked on for multiple years. And again, it was steel. This is wood. And to be able to balance a boat and keep it afloat and to balance it, this is an incredible, and again, I think the pyramids, the Burj Khalifa, nothing, nothing comes close to this. I think this is the greatest engineering feat, as many have attested to. This would be the greatest engineering feat in the history of man. Nothing comes close. That's something. That's something. The text shows that the waters covered the mountains, and, and again, historically, have believed it is the mountains of Ararat. Those mountains are 16,394-ish feet. And again, it says that it covered them by 15 cubits, 23 feet. Our text shows us that the waters rose. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but they rose for 150 days. That means the waters had to rise 110 feet per day. Many scientists would say, we don't have that kind of water in our entire earth. There's not enough water. The text will show that the water came from the springs of the deep. It will say that it rained, springs of the deep, and then the floodgates of heaven. But again, if we remember our cosmology of the ancient and how they viewed the world, they viewed the world as having these openings in the sky where that held back water. We obviously know in our science, again, we know there's not water up above the sky. We've been through the atmosphere. We orbit the earth. We have satellites. We've been there. There's not water holding back. So again, we think, probably is some of this, their worldview coming into this. It probably didn't exactly happen like we think it may have happened. And again, many scientists have said there's no way it could have rained 40 days and you could have gotten 16,000 feet of water across 
the entire world. These are things to, to think about. These are things to weigh. These are things to think about. So here, that's a great question, John. I love that. What we have to, we have to always keep the mindset. It's not, it's what God did, not that, because God could have always done something better and bigger and easier. He could have created the earth in snap of his finger. And it doesn't make him greater or less greater because he did it the way that he did it. And so I would say, we just get how it happened, and we are not to judge, is that make God greater or less greater? Or, of course, God could have done things in so many different ways. He could have, he could have, you're absolutely right, he could have covered the entire earth with water up to 16,500 feet. He absolutely could have. He could have created water out of nothing. He obviously created the whole entire universe out of nothing. He absolutely could. He absolutely could. But I think the text here, is not singing that song. I think the text here is kind of like what John Calvin and Martin Luther were running into with Copernicus and Galileo, where I thought this was it. I thought this is what the Bible was saying. But again, science was showing us a different thing. And I think that's what the science, again, is showing us. Brent, do you have something? Remember, knowledge is revealed on God's time, not ours. 100%. 100%. God's time, not ours, 100%. And so this leads us to tremendous humility. And so I'm not standing up here and saying, I know 100% what is going on here. No, I'll leave the door open to the other side, always. Because I don't know all of it. I'm not omniscient. I've just been given the data. I've been given all the sides. I've looked at it. I've tried to be humbled. I've tried to lay my opinions to the side and try to look at this thing. And I think what we're coming into is that maybe, again, and as my first point kind of puts, I think it is possible that it wasn't a global flood as we read it in Scripture. That's what I'm trying to say. I think science may have some good legs to stand on. And they may be able to help us and say, hey, maybe there's something else going on here. There's something. Again, the scientific standpoint, the battleground, it has to do with sedimentary rock, believe it or not. When water moves through a river, it pulls up rocks called sedimentary rocks, and it moves them. And what has happened is that we have these deep, deep layers all over the earth of sedimentary rock. And again, people that are proponents of the global flood will say, see there, there is evidence of a global flood because you have sedimentary rock all over the earth. The only problem with that is that again, other scientists come in and say, hey, this is what would happen. With water coming in, it would move sedimentary rock, yes, and then all the pressure of deep, deep water would compact the sedimentary rock and get the layers that we see in the kind of strata in the crust of the earth. The only problem is that as scientists have gotten into those layers, they find animal tracks in multiple layers. They find air pockets in multiple layers. They find signs of wind and wind erosion in multiple layers. And again, we can say they're fallible. And yes, again, there is a possibility. But it would seem that it was exposed to air and then underwater, and exposed to air and then underwater. 
It wasn't one great deluge and flood that moved the sedimentary rock and pressed it down because you wouldn't have those kinds of signs in it. That is the battleground, and there is, that is where both sides go after each other. It is the sedimentary rock layer. That is just a little bit of it. I know, I, again, all week, um, actually the last few weeks, I've been playing this for a number of weeks, and, uh, and again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not standing up here saying 100%, and I know, but I think I'm, I, I'm not going to work from the bias of science has nothing to say because I think it sings the same song as theology. So because of that, I will give science a voice. And that does not mean I'm putting science above God, by no means. Again, I, and, and I, I hope everybody hears that. I am not putting science above God. Because, again, they sing the same song. But as Martin Luther and as John Calvin and as many others since then have learned from that experience that maybe, maybe the science has some legs and maybe I should listen and at least come back to Scripture and say, okay, well, is there something else going on here? And maybe, maybe there is a lot of hyperbole being used in Noah's flood. Maybe there's a lot of hyperbole, and it's stretching it. It's making it grow. I, John, John Wallen will obviously say, as well as I, there probably was a real event. There probably was a real flood of magnitude, of such magnitude that multiple cultures around that area, what's called the ancient Near East, did have a flood story. And again, multiples of them, obviously going in different directions, but there probably was some type of flood. It just probably was not the global flood that we think of, covering the entire earth, all the earth. Again, we're just going to have troubles with the science. Again, Pangea, or the continents, and again, the flood, the people of global flood will say that's when the continents split apart. Again, you're going to have to... Continents move like inches a year, but you're going to have to say they moved about 10 to 12 miles a day, I think it was. That's going to create some serious stuff on Earth, some serious issues. If our tectonic plates, I mean, our tectonic plates shift a little bit, and we get an earthquake. You have them moving 10 to 12 miles in a day, you're going to have some serious stuff going on. And again, I, I, I love what John said. It's so easy to be like, of course God could do it that way. Of course. And here's the real discipline of interpreting the Bible, the real self-control. You have to look at the evidence and you have to follow the arrows as best as you can to where they're leading. Yes, there will always be eventually mystery. and Yes, there will always be a little bit, I don't understand. And maybe, yes, I just don't understand. Yes, but you only go there if all the arrows point there. You only go to mystery if everything points to mystery. You only say, you know what, this is where reason has left off. I don't know. And now I say faith. I trust this on faith. And again, I'll, I'll make everybody believe in something that science can't explain. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. I'll, amen. And I will, I will hold to that. And I would encourage you, N.T. Wright's Resurrection of the Son of God is a tremendous tremendous book on this that shows we have good reason, good reason to believe that he was indeed resurrected from the dead, was all dead and now resurrected. We have a tremendous reason. But again, we have tremendous reason to believe this. We don't just accept it, 
by with, we kind of throw our brains out and we just say, well, I'm just going to accept it. And I think that's important as we're wrestling with this scripture. How do we go about this? And again, I, I do. I, I, I think science has some things to say. And it's caused me to relook at this story. And again, I know it's hard because the battleground is the Bible seems to be so clear that it was a global flood. It uses all that language. Global flood. It, it does. And that's great. But again, if it was intended as hyperbole to hold up its central themes, which I'm going to get to here in a second, then okay, then that makes sense. It's trying to hit home some amazing themes. And again, we have to always take a step back from our Western civilization 2024 mindset where we say something can only be true if it actually happened the way that they said it happened. We have to take a step back and realize that. Because again, I'll always push on that. Stories can still be true without actually happening. The tortoise and the hare, the little engine that could. These are great true stories. Parables. Parables in the gospel are not historical facts that actually happened this way. But they are true stories. They are wonderfully true stories. And we know that to be because we know Jesus was intending to teach and he was intending to use a parable. But again, how do we know these authors of Genesis weren't just intending to convey this incredible truth to us, this universal truth, this universal truth that has universal impact and significance for all peoples all over the earth. And so they took a story and they, they ramped it up. They put hyperbole on it. They talked about it in universal terms. I think there's at least some possibility to that. And again, that does not diminish the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture is always in, in, in proper, faithful interpretation of Scripture. Not just what I think when I read it. And that takes work to interpret. It takes serious work. It is, again, not always just whatever comes to mind as I read it. Trust me, do a little history of theology, and you will find people, just history of the church, you will find people who have Bad theology. Bad theology. It takes work. We have to understand this. We have to wrestle with this. I want to get to probably the most central thing, something I think we can all agree on. <laughs> Let's read. I want to read for you Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 9, 17. This is really what the story is about. It's theme. It's real... Uh, just really the, the climax, so to speak, why this story happens. Let's read it together, verse, chapter 8, verses 20 through 9, 17. Then Noah built an altar, so this is after the flood, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again, never again, will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Amen. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Very much an allusion back, again, as I said, recreation. The, the theme, the main message of the flood account is this, that had universal ramifications as judgment, recreation and reorder, and covenant. Those are the three big things. The point of this story is 
for them to convey these ideas, God's judgment against sin, or reorder, recreation. When God returns, the, the, the symbolism of the water flooding the whole earth is a reversion back to Genesis 1-2. Undoubtedly. Everybody gets that. Everybody agrees on that. It's a reversion. It's an allusion back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, verse 1, verse 2, and the earth was formless and void. And again, many have always, there was no separation of the waters as we see in chapter 3. So you could think of the earth as this watery blob. And again, I think the author or the, the, the writer of this story is trying to show you, hey, we return back to this watery blob to recreate, to reorder, to do over. And so again, we see many of these things that God said to Adam and Eve, again, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That makes sense. He's reordering. He's restarting. The fear and dread, though, here are the differences, though, that Noah will get in Adam and Eve. The fear and the dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on the birds of the sky, rather than all the animals came to Adam and he named them. But now fear and dread on every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish in the sea, they're given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Now we changed. Some people say vegetarianism, and now they eat meat. Just as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. From each human being, too, I will demand an accounting. This is different. This is different. New order. New order. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Reaffirmation of the image of God in every human. But again, you can see God now ordering in the midst of disorder. Sin is in this world. He is reordering now. He gave order to Adam and Eve when sin was not a part of it. Sin now is a part of it. God is now making different demands to them. He is telling them how things should work. Verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Very similar to Adam and Eve. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Again, I know it, it, it looks like as plain as day. And again, I think this was the intention of the author. I think it was the intention of the author to show that again, God, here is the big point of this sermon. God was not going to, as a form of order, going to just undo it and go back to the beginning. He was never going to do that again. And if you're an Israelite child, and you're saying, Dad, why, why do we have this covenant? Why does God make covenants with us? And the father would say, you know what? We go back to this covenant that God made with Abraham, because we're Abraham's son. We're Abraham's offspring. Well, why did God make a covenant with Abraham? Because God decided in His infinite wisdom and in his goodness to this world and to the people and his commitment to all humans, that he was not going to undo it all and go start from the beginning. He was going to reintroduce a new way of order, and that was through covenant relationship with people. Starting with a man, Abraham. 
and then his offspring, and then a nation. And that God was going to deal with sin, not going to deal with it in a total deluge, or an undoing of all that's gone before him, but instead God is going to be just and he's going to judge sin in a very different way through these covenants. He's going to raise up his son. And his son will be the justice for the sin. And his son will be the judged for the sin of the world. And he will take the death. He will take the penalty on behalf of the world. We see very much a different way coming forth. A wonderful way. And the flood acts as this great story to show this transition to the covenants. That the Old Testament is built on covenants. The, the word testament is actually the Hebrew word for covenant. It's actually Old Covenant, New Covenant. That's really what the Bibles should be said. But they say testament. That was just later on kind of established that way. But it's the same Hebrew words. The Old Covenant, it's the New Covenant. It's wonderful. Covenants permeate the entire God's word. And the flood acts as this backdrop, this great story to show that God is not going to undo everything he created, but instead he's going to commit to a person, Abraham, and then to his offspring. And, and in a sense, through Abraham and his offspring, God is committing to this entire world that is sinful, that is rebellious, but that's how God is going to keep order on this earth. That's a wonderful thing. I am grateful. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful and wonderful. And so we see this covenant coming to light with Noah through the end of chapter 9. We see God's covenant, His commitment. In only three chapters, we will see Abraham come onto the scene where God will make a covenant with Abraham and to his offspring. And it is wonderful and it is beautiful. And the rest of the Bible... Everything hits on these covenants and comes back to these covenants that God makes with his people. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. That's the main subject matter. Judgment, recreation, reorder, and then covenant. It's wonderful. Again, I'll take my last couple minutes to just again kind of recap because I know a lot. I know I said a lot. I just want to, again, reinforce the idea. I, I think science has some legs to stand on, especially as it pertains to this story. And I know that that can be hard to accept, and I'm not saying, hey, y'all need to get in line. I'm, I want to meet you where you're at, and I want to have discussions, and I will have those discussions. And if you've got real issues, come talk to me. We'll meet this week. You can let them out. I, I'm going to be okay. I want us to be clear on this point. And if I wasn't clear on certain points, I want you to come talk to me because I want to be clear on it. And I want to have those discussions. And I have looked at the other side. Ken Ham, Whitcomb, Morris. I've looked at these other sides. I've seen. And I think the real issue really always came back to is the authority of God's scripture. That was the big issue where a lot of them kept saying, if we go the science route, then we're really jeopardizing the authority of God's scripture. And again, I would always bring up Martin Luther and John Calvin. They thought that same thing when it came to the earth was the center of the universe. They held up the scripture. They said, scripture says a different thing. I cannot accept you, science. But again, 500 years removed, and not one of us would say that was the proper interpretation of scripture. Scripture is not saying that. And that's not actually what's going on. And is this a similar case? Again, I'm not afraid to accept science if science is saying something different. 
Because again, they sing the same song. How great thou art. And I think they should work together. Again, properly and accurately interpreted. And I'm not a scientist. I'm not even really a theologian. So again, we could always hit on that, well, yeah, I don't understand this, I don't understand that. Well, okay, let's, let's try to understand as best as we can. And yes, there are interpretations on both sides. I was lamenting to my dad this week. I was like, there is not one thing that's not debatable on this earth. <laughs> and not one thing that both sides seem to have tremendous, strong arguments. I mean, there's, you name it, there will be. And so it's tough. And can I, can I possibly understand and know? Yes, I can know. I can know. And I obviously know that Jesus is real. And he is true. But again, his word can be complicated to understand. It's a different culture writing to a different people group with different ways of doing history and different ways of speaking. They are not 21st century Western civilization cultures. They do not write things as as strict historically as we would want them to be. If we say, somebody says something happens, then we want, it better have happened that exact way or else we're gonna say, ooh, I don't know about that. They had looser parameters on that subject matter. They did, we know it, we know it. Again, you look at the Gospels. Those Gospel writers will change details in their stories with Jesus. Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is on a mount. Why? Because mountains are always the setting of spiritual experiences. That was always the thing. That's how they viewed mountains in their worldview. Luke does not put Jesus on a mountain when he gives his Sermon on the Mount. He's not on a mountain. How do we know where it was? The authors are saying, it doesn't matter. This is a detail. The truth of what God was trying to say matters. And what matters for this story is that God judges sin. And he takes it very, very seriously. And we are to not be flippant about sin and just going on willfully sinning. He takes it very, very seriously. He created a new world order where he was going to enter into committed relationship through covenants with people. And he has done so with us in, through the new covenant, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's take that serious. Let's be people of covenant faithfulness as we bring order back to this world. Not back to this world, but we bring order in the midst of sin and disorder. That's what's important. And again, yes, I mean, I think it is important of whether or not we talk about, you know, was the flood global, was it not? I think it is important. I would hate to miss in making a disciple of Jesus because I was trying to make them affirm something that maybe the Bible isn't 100% asking them to have to hold. And I think there's just some legs. And I think there's, again, more more time to be spent studying, more time to be looking at this. I hope, I want to make one more statement. I hope, again, this is where discipline and self-control comes in when it comes to interpreting the Bible. We're talking about A. We cannot jump to Z. Okay? This is A. This is one passage. This is one story. We don't need to start questioning the existence of Jesus because now this wasn't this way I thought it was, so maybe this doesn't. Hold on. Discipline. Discipline. We have so many things going on in the Old Testament, so many different stories, so many different writers, so many different genres. And you have to have discipline. You have to come to each one on its own terms. You have to look at it. And, and sometimes, golly, in the same chapter, you have different genres going on. And you have to have the discipline to be able to say, this is this thing, 
and I interpret it this way, and then maybe even this thing under it is something different. Discipline is paramount. So I don't want us to start, oh my gosh, I don't have faith and I don't know what to believe. No, 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 you're cool, you're good. But if that, that encourages you to continue to read and to study and to ask more questions and read more books, then praise the Lord, amen, I will walk with you through that, okay? I've had multiple deconstructions of my face where I felt, oh gosh, I'm scared and I don't understand what's going on. And I know this can be uncomfortable. I know this can be uncomfortable. It's not comfortable. Gosh, I wish to the Lord that some, you know, I sometimes wish I could go back and be like, man, I just wish I didn't know all the things I knew about God's word. It was just easier. It was much more of a blessing just to, you know, Jesus loves me, don't sin, Grant. All right, cool, that's it. It was nice. But we're maturing as Christ followers. We're maturing. We're growing up. We're adults. And we've got to keep trusting them through things that, ooh, oh, this is uncomfortable. This is different. But I think as we walk through it, I think we grow. We always need that, that adversity to grow. We always need that thing. And so, again, uh, what else do I need to hit on? I have like 50 million things written down here. Um, again, I always want to put it out there. Please, 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 please. Uh, if you have an issue with this, come talk to me. We may not talk here, but you text me, call me. We'll set up a time. We'll talk. I promise I'll meet with you. We will talk. Make things more clear. I'll give you resources if you want. I'll say this is where I've been reading. This is who I've been reading. These are things that are beneficial. All right? Don't. Please, 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 please do not let this come between you and I or you and this church. This is just the other view, and I think this is a great place where we can wrestle with these ideas. Culture is wrestling with this. The church at large is wrestling. I think many of you probably have wrestled with this to some degree and wondered, what do I do with this? And, and this is a family that we can come together and have hard conversations and maybe even disagree. And, and, and I think that's okay, just as long as we don't disagree on, like, Jesus is the Son of God and he raised to life, okay? I realize this is somewhat periphery. This is not, as some say, salvation-bearing. But yet, nonetheless, I still think it's important. It's in God's Word. We want to understand and read God's Word as best and as faithfully as possible. And we want to understand the intention of the author, not necessarily just what it looks like to me in 2024 in America. Because trust me, you go to South America, and you will read the Bible very differently. If you go over to Asia, you will read the Bible very differently. If you go over to Africa, they read the Bible very differently. It just depends where you are. And it doesn't mean truth is relative, and it doesn't mean it's subjective. I'm just saying, based on where you're at, you're going to see things through a lens, and you have to do your best to try to be aware of those things and to be able to look at it and try to understand it as it was in their lens and their worldview and their context. I'll put my last point. Yes, Jesus quotes Noah. Yes, Peter in 2 Peter quotes Noah. Yes. I still don't think, as many have said, that doesn't automatically mean that they were historical in the sense of it actually means that everything that was said about them happened exactly as it says it is. No, Jesus is drawing on judgment. He's drawing on the judgment, and, and he's drawing on the theme of the story as well as Peter. They're drawing on these themes and these well-known stories that this, the culture would know. And they would understand Noah was about judgment over sin. It was about this. 
And so when they bring up these figures, that's very much what they would get from it. I have said a lot. So I know we're five over, but I do want to, if you have a pressing question, I do, I will hit it as best as I can. If you do have a question, I want it, because you're probably not the only one with that question. We want to have dialogue. We want to be able to talk honestly and openly together. I probably realize this is not the last time we're going to talk about this, but that's great. But I want to give you an opportunity, again. Want to? If somebody wants, if somebody has it, if somebody, if somebody wants it. I have a statement. Okay, you, you do it to me. Give me the statement. All right. All right. Well, how about we stand up and we pray? How about that? All right. Father God, we're grateful. We're grateful for your word. Gosh, it is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. It always has been. God, we're grateful that you have revealed yourself through your word. And, and God, we know it sometimes is difficult to understand. It doesn't always make sense. But God, we know that and we trust you. And we know we have your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, to reveal your word to us, to lead us. And we, we depend on you oh, so totally. God, we're grateful that you uh, revealed yourself through nature. And it is, gosh, it is beautiful, God. You've created such a beautiful, good world. And it does reveal things about you. And so we're grateful. And we pray that, God, you just continue to help us as we, as we continue to, to, to wrestle with science and theology and, 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 gosh, even philosophy as we wrestle with these things. And, uh, and especially in our culture and our world. And, God, we pray for your truth to shine forward. Show us how to handle these things, how to... Uh, deal with these things. God, we pray that you just continue to, to uh, just woo our hearts through the covenant, the new covenant that we have received through your son, Jesus. God, help us to be people of covenant faithfulness. And we thank you for your covenants that have established a new world order. God, may we just continue to be a part of your order that is breaking forth in your kingdom here on earth, to be a blessing to all peoples and all nations. May we be a part of that as we live lives of holiness, as we live lives in the truth, as we live lives knowing the truth and being able to express it and talk about it. God, as we just have relationship with each other in the body. God, we pray against the evil one. Pray against the evil one in your name, Lord Jesus, that that some of the things being spoken this morning would not, would not be given a foothold to the evil one. And God, we always know the, the, the solution to that is just to have honest communication. And so God, pray that we can talk and continue to talk and to be heard and, and to just, God, use this as, a, as a, just a springboard into just greater study and greater uh, just understanding of your word and this world and what you have revealed. I think it can be a blessing. I believe it will be a blessing, God, because I believe you're out ahead of it and in it in every way. And so, God, we're grateful. We trust you. 
so grateful for you, Lord. So grateful for this family that we have where we can do this and have these kinds of hard talks. We love you, Lord. Bless us this week. Continue to encourage us and lead us in the way, the truth, and the life. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. And we all say together, amen. amen.